as well. Uh, good morning, everyone. Morning. It's good to be here. A blessing to be sharing God's word with you again. I hope you've had a, an awesome week, grown in the Lord, grown closer to Him. Um, my joy this morning is to share the word of God with you once again. So I'll have you turn uh, into Daniel chapter 1, verses 15 to 21 this morning. As we continue, well, this is our second part of this series in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1 verse 15. And at the end of ten days their countenances appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. Then Malzar took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink and gave them pulse. As for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days the king had said he should bring them in, then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king communed with them, and among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm. And Daniel continued even unto the first year of King Cyrus. Let's open up in a word of prayer and we'll see what the Lord has for us today. Father in heaven, once again, as we come before your throne, our hearts are filled with thanksgiving and praise because of who you are and what you have done. We thank you that we are able to be here this morning because of the wonderful sacrifice of your son, who you willingly gave that we might be free from sin and rescued from hell. And we pray... Uh, for your blessings upon us this morning. As we seek to learn more from your word, we pray for the working of your spirit within our hearts to grant us grace and wisdom and understanding as we see Daniel has here. We pray, Heavenly Father, that as we understand your word, we would have also the conviction to live it, that we might glorify you in everything we do and say. Be glorified in our midst today, I pray in Jesus' name. Um, <clears throat> when he was appointed as the pastor of the church in Cambridge, England in 1783, Charles Simeon was absolutely delighted. It was his first pastorship. And um, he was looking forward to being the pastor of that church and, and uh, sharing the gospel with people who didn't know the Lord. Uh, one of the problems that he had, though, was that the congregation, especially the, the people who were more prominent in the congregation, didn't share that idea. Uh, they didn't like the idea of sharing the gospel with other people. And so they, I don't know how, we don't have pews here, um, they managed to lock the pews so people couldn't sit in them. And... He started off uh, his uh, ministry at that church in Cambridge uh, with people literally sitting and standing in the aisles to hear him preach. That was how difficult it was to start, start off with there, simply because he wanted to share the gospel with the lost. 
Um, but as time went on, more and more people uh, came to the actual church and eventually he overcame the opposition or by the grace of God, that op opposition was overcome so that he actually uh, began a movement, uh, not just within the church at Cambridge, but other churches as well to send out missionaries to other parts of the world and many people were saved as a result of his persistence and faithfulness. And he wrote this in, uh, in, um, in his writings. He said, um, during the days that he was being opposed, he said, it, it was uh, in this state of things, I saw no remedy but faith and patience. It was painful indeed to see the church, with the exception of, uh, of the isles, almost forsaken. But I thought that if God would only give a double blessing to the congregation that did attend, there would be on the whole be as much good done as if the congregation were doubled and the blessing limited to only half the amount. This comforted me many, many times when without such a reflection I should have sunk under my burden. Um, now, when we face opposition, when we are uh, focused on doing the right thing, the thing that the Lord wants us to do, um, we look at sometimes that opposition as evidence maybe that we're not doing the right thing, but it's often the opposite. Normally when you're doing something for the Lord, where you face opposition, it's normally a sign that you're actually doing the right thing. Because we live in a world not necessarily that will uh, applaud what you do when you do something right. And so if you allow yourself to be deterred um, from doing that which you know God wants you to do until you have the approval of other people, you know what you're going to end up doing? Nothing. Because you shouldn't expect the approval of other people when you seek the approval of the one. Rather than being discouraged by opposition, instead we should be thankful that we can partake in the sufferings and the opposition that our Saviour uh, partook in as well. So remember, opposition does not normally mean that you are doing the wrong thing. Um, opposition normally means that you are doing the right thing. So uh, be comforted knowing that your Saviour also experienced that. And we see Daniel a perfect example of that. Okay? When he faced opposition, he remained faithful to the Lord, and that's what we'll be seeing in today's sermon. So last week we discovered that Daniel, who was probably only aged between 13 to 15 years of age, was taken captive from Jerusalem. So Jerusalem had been besieged by the Babylonian uh, army, and Daniel and some of his friends and possibly his family were taken all the way from Jerusalem, marched from there to Babylon, along with others, and for a young boy that would have been quite a daunting experience. Judah had been judged by the Lord because of their sin and the sin of their leaders, and God had warned them many years before that this would occur, but they refused to listen and they refused to repent of their ways. And Jeremiah in 25 uh, verse 11 says, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So God had preordained because of their failure to repent and because of their sin, that they would uh, be taken to Babylon. And so um, you see these, um, uh, much of Israel's history uh, goes back to what happened to them in Babylon. In fact, you know when you see the synagogues 
in, uh, in the New Testament where Jesus walked into the synagogues and the, the, the apostles preached first in the synagogues. The idea of a synagogue actually really started during those times there. Because they had been exiled to a foreign land for 70 years, how do you keep? What do you do? There's no temple. And so they, they built these places that would preserve their faith and that they could congregate together and they could actually uh, share their faith and their culture and preserve it. And so when they returned back to, uh, to Israel, they actually continued with that. One of the lessons that we can learn from uh, the failing of Israel is that sin has its consequences. Their sin not only affected themselves, but affected the whole of Judah, the whole of Israel. And one of the, one of the lessons that I, I, I prayed that you would learn last week is that when we sin, it affects the people around us. You may not realise it, you may not see it, but it plants seeds of destruction in their lives as well as, as, well as ours. And it's best to avoid all sin. Sin is like planting weeds in the middle of your veggie patch. Okay, so you have your veggie patch, but then along the long lines, you think, you know what? Oh, I can't be bothered looking after the veggie patch for the moment. I'm going to plant a couple of weeds here. That's more fun. And so you plant the weeds, and and um, and they, they they look fairly innocent at the beginning, but then after a while, they grow and they grow three times faster than the rest of your veggies do and they choke the life out of your vegetables. So at the end, the fruit that you're able to gather is no longer the fruit that you had intended to gather. The good fruit, you actually end up uh, reaping a crop of weeds. And that's what sin is like. It overcomes, it chokes the life out of, of anything good that you're trying to do and it affects the good in your life and the people around you as well. So Remember, if you have weeds, what's the best thing to do with them? You pull them out by the roots. And that's what God wants us to do. With respect to weeds, he doesn't want you planting more. He doesn't want you just, just trimming the tops of them to make them look pretty. Because they're not pretty. He doesn't want you to, to maybe just do something artificially. He wants you to pull those things out by the roots because ultimately they have an effect on the rest of your life. And this is what Judah experienced. Ultimately, when God judged them, they were already being affected during before God's judgment, but ultimately God judged them and it affected everyone around them. Remember, the good fruits that you produce in your life are a blessing to those people around you, but also the bad fruits that you produce will affect them as well. So ultimately, the Bible tells us and God warns us to keep away from sin. In fact, the Bible says to run from sin. If you see it there, if it's presented before you, don't play around with it, don't hang around with it, don't spend time observing it, run away the other direction, okay? Don't play with sin. In fact, keep away from it. Galatians warns us, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Okay, that's for the believer as well. All right, so if you think you can play around with sin and just and just you know live your life half in sin and half in, and half uh, for the Lord, the Bible says God's not mocked. God's not silly. He's not stupid. Okay, He knows even if you're His child, He's going to have to discipline you because if you get yourself into sin, it's going to affect your life and it's going to affect the lives of others around you. So He says in Galatians six seven, "Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that 
shall he also reap. For he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. So there is a, a principle here about sowing and reaping. And Daniel was determined not to sow any bad seeds. He was determined not to sow sin in his own life. And so we saw that the Babylonians had not only carried away the, the people from, uh, from Israel, but they also carried, uh, and they carried the wealth away, but they carried the vessels that were used in the temple to worship God. And where did they bring those vessels, those golden vessels that were, that were used to worship God? They brought it into their, the temple of their God called Marduk, which was Nebuchadnezzar's God. And so one of the other principles that I shared with you last week was when believers sin and forsake the Lord, his glory is lost. We rob him of his glory, and that's what sin does as well. So despite this gloomy outlook, though, Daniel's book was written to encourage fellow believers, to encourage people of, of his own generation, that even though it looked as if everything was out of control and that things were, were really bad, he wanted to encourage them that God was ultimately in control and that God was, was faithful. And if they remain faithful, he continued to, would continue to be faithful to them. And so Daniel has encouraged countless believers through many, many years who have been living in foreign lands, under oppressive regimes, under trials and tribulations from others. And it, it, it teaches us that if we are faithful, we will see God working in our lives. In fact, God is always faithful even when we are not faithful. The story of Daniel encourages his encouragement to believers in the world because the Bible tells us that we are no longer part of this world. In fact, we are strangers and pilgrims in it. We have been granted citizenship in heaven. We belong to an eternal kingdom where Christ is the king. We have bowed our knee to our sovereign and we seek to live our lives for him. We have been granted a citizenship in heaven. We are now here, though, for the rest of our days, representing him and his kingdom. We are called to be the lights in this world, the salt of the earth. We are servants, we are his children, and we are called to be, in all of our dealings, in everything that we do, the very epitome and demonstration of God's character on the earth. So think for a moment of this young Daniel, a 15, 13 to 15 year old boy uh, who's been taken to a foreign land and has been brought to this city called Great Babylon. He's been taken from Jerusalem and brought to this enormous walled city, which is the capital of Babylonia. And the grandest building in Jerusalem was the temple, okay? It was huge. And Jerusalem itself is a walled city. In fact, uh, you were counted a city in those days if you had a wall around you. If you didn't have a wall, you were essentially a town, okay? But he, he was brought to this particular walled city, and it would have been an absolutely overwhelming experience for him. Babylon was an impressive city. We're about 
500, roughly half a million people lived in those days. The walls surrounding the city were 18 kilometres long and they were 25 metres thick. So just to give you an idea, this room, the length of this particular room was about 15 metres. The width of those walls were 25 metres thick and, and went for 18 kilometres. It was surrounded by a moat and had watchtowers roughly every 20 metres. The walls were covered with blue enameled brick and had, and had uh, pictures on them, okay, or reliefs or statues of pretty exotic animals, bulls and dragons and all those types of things. It was apparently one of the most beautiful cities ever, ever designed. The walls, the, 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 the pathways within the city were either red brick or limestone, I believe. Um, and you had all different colours all around. The city had 40 temples inside it, dedicated to more than 40 different gods. Each god had its own, each temple had its own god. Actually, one of those gods you may recognise was the god Ishtar. Yeah. And the Temple of Marduk was the grandest temple, which was right located right next to the, um, the, 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 the place where the king was, the palace. The city was literally a marvel of engineering and was filled with hanging gardens. In fact, if you've ever heard of the, of the seven wonders of the ancient world, one of the wonders of the ancient world was the hanging gardens in Babylon. So can you imagine walking into this particular city coming from, from Jerusalem, a bit like being taken out of a place like Bendigo or Ballarat and being dropped in the middle of Times Square in New York. You'd be, you'd be astonished by what you were seeing. And Nebuchadnezzar's own palace was, was a huge complex of ornate, rooms and throne rooms and decorated rooms. He had courtyards all over, over the place. And, and for those of you who remember uh, 1990, the 1990s, if you're around for that long, um, you remember that during the, uh, the war with, with uh, Iraq, okay, remember that he was Saddam Hussein? One of Saddam Hussein's uh, goals in life was to rebuild this city uh, with him as the new Nebuchadnezzar because he wanted to revive the glory of the Babylonian Empire, which is in Iraq. Uh, didn't go too well for him. Um, didn't achieve what he wanted to achieve. But imagine you being a young Daniel, being brought into this city. You've been taken captive. The, 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 your people have been, have been conquered. Your people ha are being deported. And you've now been brought into this unbelievably um, uh, impressive uh, city with a massive army. Um, it would have been quite daunting. It would have been overwhelming for a, young, for a young man like that. And you would have been intimidated by the sheer power and the glory of this particular town. And yet as we, as we see and read uh, this particular 
uh, passage today, we see that Daniel, one of the things that distinguishes him is he wasn't intimidated. He doesn't seem to be intimidated. He doesn't seem to be overwhelmed. In fact, he keeps his wits about him and he knows exactly what he believes. And he isn't, he isn't daunted or overly impressed by what he's seeing. Sure, it would have looked beautiful, but it didn't change his view about the God that he believed in. You see, a lot of people get confused. They get confused with technology. They get confused with worldly power and wisdom and all that sort of stuff over there. And they look at it and they say, oh, well, look at it. But look how wonderful that is. Look how great that is. And then it puts some doubt or, or seed of doubt in their minds about the God that they believe in. And it shouldn't. We're going to learn that Daniel was not intimidated and neither should you or I ever be intimidated by what we see in this world. Regardless of how technologically advanced this world becomes, regardless of how wonderful a city is, how wonderful our advancement is, how wonderful a culture is, you know what? It's never ever as great as God's kingdom. I remember having a conversation with my uncle once when he was sharing the gospel with me. My uncle was the first one in our family who got saved. And I was enthralled with science in those days. And he took me, he took me, just me and him, he took me to the state library. And we were there and we were looking at that books and, and, and I was fairly young. I wasn't, I wasn't too old. And I remember, I remember him sharing these particular words with me and he said, and I said, what about all these wonderful things that people have done? Because I was trying to, to tell him that, you know, to believe in God was like, it was like not, it was not compatible with all the wonderful signs that we had, had discovered, right? Okay, which is what the same argument that's brought up these days. And I remember him saying these, these words to me and it, and it sort of stuck with me for a while. He said, you know, Frank, he goes, you know when they discovered when you know when Einstein discovered e equals m c squared, or you know, or they discovered all these amazing laws, and they can make atomic bombs out of those things, or they discover new planets, or they discover you know further and things that are, that are more intricate and difficult to to find. All these things that we rejoice when we find uh, as as humans, he said. You know what? He goes. God already knew it. It didn't come as a surprise to him that Einstein discovered e equals mc squared. It didn't come as a surprise to him when, you know, when astronomers started finding other planets. You know what? It didn't take him by surprise. Because he's the one who made them. He's the one who wrote the laws. So when we discover and we think how, wonderfully, how wonderful we actually are, God's saying, oh, you find that one? Okay, tick. 50,000 50, more to find. <laughs> And so there's nothing, there's nothing this world can ever, ever find or discover or whatever that will ever, ever catch God unawares, that will ever, ever impress him. Because he's the one who came up with these things in the first place. And so Daniel wasn't intimidated. He wasn't shell-shocked. He may have looked and, and, and looked at his grandeur and thought, oh, wow, that's pretty impressive. But it never took his eyes off that grandeur. That impressiveness never took his eyes off the one who is the most impressive. Because God was more important than all of the kingdoms of the world put together. Now Daniel and his friends has been specifically taken uh, and, and brought into a program. See, they won a scholarship. How would you like to win this sort of scholarship? Um, they won a scholarship uh, and as young men. And, and, there were, and this scholarship program that was created by King Nebuchadnezzar, and he was told to the, the, the prince of his eunuchs there, he said, I want you to find me young men 
who are without blemish. They have to be uh, wise. They, they, all these conditions that he put, and I want them to be trained up and then uh, uh, brought into my uh, my palace, uh, so they can uh, advise me on certain things. Which is an interesting uh, concept, but he used it as a strategic advantage because if he brought in people from different cultures, they would know their own culture already, wouldn't they? And so he brought he would uh, teach them his own culture, then train them in all the advanced sciences huh, of the Babylonian. Empire, and then they, that way they could advise him about what the best way to deal with their own people would be. So go back to Daniel uh, chapter 1, verse 3 for a moment. Daniel chapter 1, verse 3. It says, And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish. Um, but well-favoured and skilful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science and such as had ability to them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. So the tongue of the Chaldeans, I believe, was Aramaic um, or some form of it in those days. So these four boys were chosen as part of this program and... They were chosen for their lineage, for their wholeness, for their good looks, because you couldn't be ugly no, if you wanted to stand before the king, uh, king Nebuchadnezzar, and their knowledge in order to be trained in the culture and language of the superior Babylonian empire or culture. They would be trained in subjects like Babylonian religion, philosophy, magic, astrology and medicine. So the goal here would be to thoroughly indoctrinate them with the way the Babylonians thought, with their culture. And so this three-year program, like a uni degree, was designed to create people that would think like Babylonians. They would eventually think like them. They would look like them, eat like them, act like them, and they would know all the finest and most intricate details of what their learned scholars knew as well. So look at, and, and on top of this, not only were they, were they trained in these things, they were actually given um, new names and given and shown how to eat the, the finest Babylonian foods. So if you look at verse 5, it says, And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat. That must be pretty good stuff. That's not like, that's your, what's Wagyu beef probably there? Huh? That's good quality stuff, right? So it says they were appointed a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, which he drank, mind you. So this is like the, the good quality stuff too. So nourishing them for three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. For he gave unto Daniel the name Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. Now, why does the Bible mention their names? What's so significant about that? Well, apart from becoming the main characters now in this book, these, these four young men, um, they, they, become the, the, they also show us what their faith is like. In fact, their names tell us what their faith was. Interestingly enough, you know, many people name their children today with names that have a meaning, right? 
So I, I dare say, if I ask most of you what the meaning of your name is, you probably know what the meaning of it is, because most names have some sort of a meaning. Uh, Frank means I'm a Frenchman. Not really, I'm Italian, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> so it was the same in those days. People were named with names that actually had meanings behind them. So if you look at, look at these names just for a moment, I want to share something with you. It says in verse 6, now, these were, now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, uh, Mishael, and Azariah. Okay? So you'll notice that each of these names ends with, a, ends with an R, A-H, okay? or an L. Notice that? Daniel, Azariah, Hananiah. And, uh, and Mishael. So, just to, just to share, each of these, these uh, boys were named after God in one way or the other. Okay? So, the name of God, Jehovah, notice it ends with an ah at the end of it, okay? or the word Elohim, or Al, which meant God. Okay? So, Elohim means God, and Jehovah was God's name. And so generally, when you see the word God in your Bible, it's the word Elohim, or Al. So you'll notice that the first verse in the Bible, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. That word God is Elohim, Elohim, just the word God. Now where you see the name Lord, or the word Lord with capital L-O-R-D in your KJV, that's where God's name is written, and it's called the Tetragrammaton. And it's four letters, Y-H-W-H. And we have the anglicised form of this particular word. Um, but the Jews refused in their own writings to actually write or pronounce this word because it was deemed so holy. They were worried that if they pronounced it wrongly or they used it in the wrong manner, they'd be blaspheming God's name and they'd be using his name in vain. And so they refused to even write it. And we actually, the, the, KJ, the, the writers of the, uh, or the interpreters of the, um, of the KJV use the same type of thing. So when you see L-O-R-D, that's the four letters of God's name. Actually, some people say that you can't even pronounce that name because there are no vowels in it. All right? But that's not necessarily true. Um, and I've heard different ways of the name being pronounced. I've even heard one person saying it's the same way you breathe in and out. So you know how God breathed into uh, Adam when he formed him? So this particular fellow says the way you pronounce God's name is <sighs> All right? breathing in and simply breathing out. So it, it represents the, the, the breath of life. Don't know. I'm not an expert in, in Jewish names, okay? But either way, each of these boys was named after, either had God in their name, and their name meant something like the follower of God, or the one who looks to God, or those types of things, or they had Jehovah, the very name of God in their name. Actually, if you remember, Abraham was not always Abraham, it was Abram, and Sarah was not always Sarah, she was Sarai. And God changed their names to put his H in it. Okay? And that's why they ended up with those names. So um, you'll notice if you read the Old Testament, many names have either Al in them or they have a H in them. And that always means that they're, they're, the name has something to do with God. Okay? So either way, all of these young boys were named after God or had names that meant something about God.
And so the, the Babylonians couldn't have that. Can't have that. You're going to have you're going to you try and indoctrinate these boys into into the Babylonian culture. You can't have them having names or having names that that mean glory to God or glory to to Jehovah or or anything like that. So what they did is they gave them new names. And if you look at it, Daniel uh, chapter one verse seven says, "Unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names, for he gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach." and to Azariah of Abednego. So Daniel, just as they were named after the God of the Bible, they were now given names after the Babylonian gods. Okay, So Daniel was named after the god Bel, or Mar- the, other, the other name for Marduk. Okay? So that's why he's got Bel at the beginning of his name, because he's named after this god Marduk. Hananiah is named after the god Aku, which was a Sumerian moon god, and so was Mishael, named after the same Aku. And Azariah was given a name meaning the servant of Nego. Okay? So, hmm, interesting, isn't it? So they had their names, but they chose to give them new names so their names wouldn't pollute the, the Babylonian uh, society or culture. And it doesn't mention that they actually rejected the names. It doesn't mention that they had a problem with it. They probably couldn't care less, really, what people called them. But I'll, 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 I'll fathom a guess that when they were among themselves, they weren't calling them each other Belteshazzar. They were calling each other Daniel and, and, and Mishael. So they didn't say, all right, no, no, we don't want those names. They said, all right, I don't care. You will call us whatever you want. Um, and if, in verse 8 it says, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat nor with the wine which he drank therefore he requested the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself so he made a request of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile well what was wrong with the meat and the wine well, what was the problem with it it was good meat good wine probably well, you might already know that God had placed some fairly strict restrictions strict restrictions on the Jews and what they could eat, his own people. He said, well, I don't want you eating these foods. And so some of these included not eating certain types of meat which were prohibited, such as we're going to see in a minute. So turn back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 14. We're just going to look, read a couple of small passages about some of the restrictions that God had placed on his people and the food that they could eat. They were only allowed to eat food that God said was clean for them to eat. Now keep in mind as well, I'm not sure what the exact purpose of it was, why God put such uh, restrictions on his own people, but keep in mind also that there was no refrigeration in those days. Um, and there were probably other, other reasons as well that we don't necessarily know about. Either way, if God commands it, we follow. So Deuteronomy 14.4 says, These are the beasts which ye shall eat. So these are the ones that the Jews were allowed to eat. The ox, the sheep, and the goat, the hart, and the roebuck, and the fallow deer, and the wild goat, and the pygarg, and the wild ox, and the sh- How do you pronounce that last word? Shammy. 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 
The same thing I clean my car with. Okay. Yeah. All right. So going down to verse 7, now it says these are the ones they couldn't eat. Nevertheless, these you shall not eat of them that chew the cud or of them that divide the cloven hoof as the camel. Can't eat a camel. And the hare and the coney. For they chew the cud but divide not the hoof. Therefore they are unclean unto you. And the swine. So that they can't, they weren't allowed to eat pork because it divideth the hoof. Yet cheweth not the cud. It is unclean uh, unto you. You shall not eat of their flesh nor touch their dead carcass. Now look at verse 9. These ye shall eat of all that are in the waters look at the look at the rules they had for what they could eat out of the um out of the sea all that have fins and scales ye shall eat okay and whatsoever has not fins and scales ye may not eat it is unclean unto you of all so that that means no calamari oh, i'm not sure how to live with that one <laughs> and prawns and uh, lobster i'm getting hungry even now um they weren't allowed to eat any shellfish or anything that didn't have scales and fins, okay? And look at the birds. It says there, of all the clean birds ye shall eat, but these are they of which ye shall not eat, the eagle, the ossifrage, and the osprey, and the glede, and the kite, and the vulture after his kind, and every raven after his kind, and the owl, and the nighthawk, and the cuckoo and the hawk after his kind, the little owl and the great owl and the swan and the pelican and the gear eagle and the cormorant and the stork and the heron after their kind and the lapwing and the bat. So no bat soup for anyone here today. All right. Now you'll notice that most of those birds, are carnivorous birds, are, are, are ravaging birds as well. And also the, the most of the shellfish that, that, uh, that are not allowed to eat, they're also scavengers as well. So they eat and consume things that fall to the bottom and they eat those up. God was saying to these people, I don't want you eating anything, it's like a scavenger, essentially. So, you're, young, you're a young Daniel and they've said to you, we're going to bring you the king's meat well what is the king's meat is it camel is it bats is it what 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 is it like a king's meat could be literally anything because they had no the, the babylonians probably whatever they caught they'd eat um and so he had its problem on his hands is that whatever food they brought to him which probably was in a nice gravy or had spices or had a nice curry about it or something like that, actually couldn't probably tell what he was eating. So he's in a bit of a dilemma here. He doesn't want to break God's commands. Um, and so the only thing really he can do is say, sorry, can we forego the meat here? Because I don't know what it is. You see, God didn't put restrictions on what vegetables they could eat. So he said, well, how about this? So... Um, well, the problem wasn't just that. Actually, the problem wasn't just the wrong types of meats, but possibly the way they were killed because there was a very strict way that God said you had to kill an animal and you had to drain all of its blood because the blood was holy and it had to actually be, to be poured onto the ground. So maybe the, the blood was still in the actual animal. And from another, from another point of view, the other problem with meat is that much meat, especially in those days, was sacrificed to gods. All right? 
And so God didn't like uh, his people eating meats that had been sacrificed to idols or other things of that nature. And so Exodus 34, 14, if you want to turn with me there, you'll notice that God puts a strict requirement on his people not to eat, not to be involved with any other um, gods or idols. He didn't want them to eat meat offered to those idols as well. It was forbidden uh, for his people. Exodus 34, 14. It says, Therefore thou shalt worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land when they were going into the promised land and they go a whoring after their gods and do sacrifice unto their gods and one call thee and thou eat of his sacrifice. Okay, So God does not want his people either to go chasing after other gods and he looked at and he spoke about it in terms of an adulterous sort of affair. Okay, So, so they were devoted to him. They were his people and that's the reason he's jealous is that you're my people. I don't want you going whoring after other gods and mixing yourself with them. But part of that was, I don't want you eating foods that have been dedicated to them either. And so part of the challenge that Daniel had was um, that whatever food was brought before him, even if it was, you know, a, a goat meat, which he could eat, um, likelihood it was probably already sacrificed to another god. And so he could never know. And so the, the he decided not to partake of it altogether. And you might say, well, what about the wine? Was it the alcohol? Well, not necessarily, because there wasn't a direct prohibition to drink alcohol in the, in the law. But the problem also with wine was twofold, is that it too was often sacrificed to idols. That wine was also used in sacrificial rites. And on top of that, what wine was used for was to, with people who were worshipping certain gods in one of those, in, in those temples, they would get themselves into a drunken frenzy using wine and that they would then commit fornication in those temples. So um, a lot of, the, a lot of the, the problems that the, uh, the early church had was when people started coming into the church, okay, they were coming from, from, uh, from Greek culture, um, and there were certain cultures where the temple of a particular, uh, whether it was, it was Diana or whatever, it was a place where um, prostitutes were. The, the temple literally was a, um, what do you call it? A brothel. And people would go and worship in that way. And Bacchus, uh, who was also a god in the, in the early church days, was a god of wine. And they would get drunk and then they'd have orgies in, the, in his church. And so things weren't necessarily different in the Babylonian culture either. The, the, their churches often had to do with sexual rights as well. And often sexuality was mixed up with, and you know, I think I've shared with this with you before, when, when, the, when the, the people of Israel started chasing after Baal and Asherah, well that's the male and female god of the Canaanites, and often the, they would perform sexual uh, act, uh, rights or uh, perversions in order to get their attention and so that they would perform sexually so the, the land would become fertile. You see the link? And so Daniel thought, not a good idea. Not a good idea to have the meat and not a good, not a good idea to have this wine uh, because there are a whole lot of other connotations that go along with it. 
So look at verse 9 in Daniel chapter 1 now. It says, Now God had brought Daniel into favour and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who hath appointed your meat and your drink, for why should he see your faces worse liking than the children which are of your sword? Then shall, he, then shall ye make me endanger my head to the king. All right, so the prince of the eunuchs uh, took a liking to Daniel, uh, and Daniel, uh, and when he said uh, Daniel, he, that, that Daniel wanted, Daniel said that he didn't want to have the meat and the wine. He got a little bit worried about it because the first thing in his mind was, well, if you start getting undernourished, and uh, we line you up in front of the king, and he goes, why are those four looking so, you know, malnourished or whatever they were? He'd have to give an answer. And you have to say, well, king, they don't want your meat, they don't want your wine, and and who let them do that? Um, so he was worried for his own head, to be honest with you. He had a concern about that. He didn't want them to look malnourished because then he'd have to answer to King Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel thought to himself, this is where this kid keeps his head. He actually is, is in control. He's wise beyond his years. So he goes to Malzar. He was the direct um, uh, the person over him. Look what he says in verse 11. Then said Daniel to Malzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days. And let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink. Then let our countenances, the way we look, be looked upon before thee and the countenance of the children that eat the portion of the king's meat. And as thou seest, deal with thy servants. So he consented to them in this matter and proved them ten days. So Daniel's offer was quite simple. If that's what your concern is, why don't we test it for ten days? We'll just eat, well a pulse is essentially like things like you know, lentils, chickpeas and legumes and, and, and probably included fruit as well because they, they were grown from seed. But Daniel said to him, how about you try, we try this, we'll just drink water and eat these things, and eat vegetables essentially, and, uh, and then in, in 10 days line us up with the rest of the crowd, the rest of the, uh, the boys there. And if we look worse, we'll leave it to you, what you do. We'll leave that as your decision. Now, that takes a fair bit of courage and faith to do that, doesn't it? Because one thing that he must have had great confidence with is that God would actually bless him through that. Because he wanted to follow God's law. He wanted to follow God's command. And so, at the end of 10 days... It says in verse 15, it says, the end of 10 days, their countenances appeared fairer and fatter in flesh. So I wish I had that problem. Than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. Thus Malzah took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink and gave them pulse. So look at that. So after 10 days, they were fatter than the other, other ones. They looked more nourished. They looked more healthy. And so it says here that this Malzah willingly took away the, the meat and the wine from them and said, all right, you guys can just keep eating that. And if you're wondering whether this is advocating a, 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 a vegetarian diet, it's not. It's not. Um, this is advocating faithfulness to God. 
That's what this is advocating. It's not advocating a vegetarian diet, but you're going to get fatter with vegetables. You're not going to get fatter with vegetables, okay? Um, <laughs> um, the first lesson that I'd love you to take away today um, is that Daniel, you'll notice Daniel first purpose in his heart, what he wanted to do and what he didn't want to do. Does that make sense to everyone? He didn't want to defile himself with stuff that was wrong, stuff that he knew that God had commanded uh, against. Okay, He wanted to be faithful to his Lord, and I want you to keep that in mind. He purposed it in his heart. You'll notice that he didn't complain about having to learn Aramaic. He didn't complain about having to learn their science, their custom, their religion, not even their magic or medicine. No doubt they would have dressed them in Babylonian clothes as well. What concerned Daniel was not having to learn things or being called a different name or what they were going to make him wear. He was concerned about breaking God's law. He wanted to stay faithful to the Lord. That was his main concern. So Daniel chose to remain pure regardless of even the consequences. Now in that lesson we can learn from a 15-year-old boy who chooses and determines in his heart that he wants to be faithful to God regardless of the pressure. There are plenty of, the, of things in this world that are not right for us. Okay, Plenty of them. Okay, But if we determine in our hearts to stay faithful to the Lord, then we have every opportunity to keep away from those things. If we start messing around with them, not sure about what, whether we go left or right from the beginning, half the battle's already lost. But if we determine in our hearts to stay faithful to God, then we have every opportunity to stay faithful because it, it's a determination. Yesterday we celebrated a wonderful wedding. Okay, So Adrian and Jesse uh, were married and they made a vow to each other. They made a vow to be true to each other, to love one another, despite whatever circumstances may come, that they were going to love one another for the rest of their lives. That's a vow, right? But that's determining in your heart. You see, it's much more than just words. And when the child of God determines something in their heart, it's as good as making an open oath to God. It's making a promise, I want to be true to you. Determining it in your heart, purposing something in your heart, means you're saying, I'm going to walk this path regardless of whatever, what gets thrown at me, what dangers I may come against. There are plenty of these things that are not right for us in this world. And if we're listening to the leading of the Spirit in our lives and we have our hearts set on following Him, then we can do it. Because God gives us the grace to do it. He also gives us the grace to avoid sin, to keep away from it. So faithfulness is the first thing I want you to understand that Daniel had. He wanted to be faithful. He chose to be faithful. He purposed to be faithful. And that's what we should purpose each day of our lives. But on top of that, Daniel showed wisdom. He didn't go screaming the house down. He didn't go, he didn't go causing a huge ruckus because he re was refusing to, to wear their clothes or to speak their language or how dare you call me that. He didn't do that. He focused on the things that were important. And he was wise about the way he actually did it. He was wise in his choices. He was no bull in a china shop. Okay? It seems, and in his, and in his, um, in his offer that he made, it seems 
that he even showed concern about their lives. He was concerned. So his offer that he made to the, to the fellow that was over, to Malzar, showed Malzar, the fellow who was his captor, by the way, the fellow who was over him, it showed him that he cared about them as well. He didn't want their heads lopped off by the king. And he was, the offer he made them showed that he was concerned about their well-being too. And his test, the fact that he actually said, all right, let's do it like this, showed he had tremendous faith in God, that God would come through. It shows the maturity beyond years for a 15-year-old boy who realises that not only can he stay faithful to God in the midst of a generation that is against his God, but it showed someone who realises that his life can be a demonstration of the grace of God to people around him. You see, he showed faith in front of other people. His, his offer showed them, I know my God can do this. And at the end, they had to agree with it because it was obvious. Your life and my life can be a wonderful demonstration to those people around us of the grace of God. People in this world often think that there's only one way of doing things or only one way that you can be happy in life. As if, you, like if you do this or do that or have this or have that and you'll know that, that people in our world are in absolute bondage to their own culture and to their own marketing. But we can actually make a huge difference here because we can show them that it doesn't have to be that way. When we live our lives openly in front of them and they know that the decisions we make are based on what we believe and what, we've, what we know from God, our Father, then they will see the result in our own lives and they can't really argue with, can they? There are some people that, that will tell you to get ahead in life you have to do certain things like you know, cheat on your tax return or you know, take advantage of other people or step over other people to get where you have to get to or imitate the lives of the rich and the famous. Huh? If you're like them, if you live like them, if you think like them, then you can be successful like them. You know, our lives can be a testimony that that's not true. Our lives can be a testimony that you can be successful in life and success is measured in a lot of different ways, but from our perspective, success means I live my life according to God's plan for me, according to his ways. I live a life that glorifies him with what I say and what I do. And you know what? I can be more successful than any person in this world. Because someone may have, Jeff Bezos may have billions of dollars, but my father owns the hills, that the cattle are on a thousand hills, and everything in this world and this universe has to offer. So I've got nothing to worry about in terms of wealth, that's for sure. My life can be full of joy. Their happiness is fleeting depending on what they have from day to day and whether they're popular one day or not popular the next day. Our lives have joy and meaning because of who we belong to. So remember, your life can be a testimony of how wonderful God is and his grace in your life. So 1 Peter 
Actually, turn to First Peter chapter four with me. We read we read part of that this morning. Peter says in First Peter chapter four verse three, for the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. So we, we, we were running around after their their will. When we walked in lasciviousness, in lusts, excessive wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. We used to live lives maybe that were like that, okay? We used to run after what the world told us. Uh, was important. We used to run after what the world loved. But verse 4 then says, wherein they think it's strange that you run not with them to the same excess of right, speaking evil of you. So when they look at you and they say, what's wrong with you now? You don't come to the pub with me anymore. You don't get drunk with us anymore. You don't have fun with us anymore. What's wrong with you? You must be a very boring person. And then because what we do shows them up a little bit they begin to what's natural for them is to attack what they don't understand and so uh, the apostle peter here says they, they they speak evil of you because you don't go running after the same things that they run after and so therefore you've put them at risk now because you may your life may demonstrate that you can have unbelievable joy and happiness without running after those things which shows that they may be running after stuff they're just wasting their time and money on. Because deep down, they aren't happy. Deep down, they have no joy. Deep down, one small thing out of place and their life collapses. They think it's strange that you don't partake in the same things that they do. No, it used to be like that. When I used to see Christians early on in my... When I was thinking about Christianity, I used to think, look at those people, they're not... They don't do what I do. And then when I, when I got saved, <laughs> and my friend brought me to the first week, I got saved and, and, and we were ready with our friends to go out to the nightclub. And I remember walking into this nightclub, and for the first time in my life, I actually looked at where I was. I saw what was going on in there. I looked at the people and what their intentions were one to another and I couldn't stay in there and I asked I remember asking my friend um, my best friend at the time I said can you take me take me out of here and he goes what's wrong with you I said I can't stay in here it's stifling and he and he took me home to his credit and I praise God that he got saved a month later so sometimes the things that we do are a demonstration of God's grace in our life. But we have to take a stand. You have to make a decision and purpose in your heart to follow God's ways, to avoid the thing that's evil, to be a good witness to those people around us. And I'm sure Daniel thought that as well. He could be a witness to Malzar. He could be a, a, a witness to Ashpenaz. He could be a witness to even those, those other Jews that were with him, that you can be strong. You can stay strong. You actually do this. And God will give you the grace to do it. And he showed that you can show great love without compromising your faith. Daniel never showed, if you, if you see Daniel's life, he never showed contempt for the people that were above him. Never shows contempt. 
never tells them off, never swears at them, never, never loses his temper with them. He never shows contempt for the people that are above him, even, even though they're not godly people. His actions, are, his actions demonstrate a quiet confidence that he has in God without having to run off his own steam. Okay? So the final thing I want you to, to understand is that God rewards Daniel's faithfulness. God will reward our faithfulness. He rewards it because he, he loves to give. We have a God who loves to actually give. And when his children do good, he wants to, he wants to shower them with blessings. And he did it with these four here. So you'll notice that Daniel, when, 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 they, when they purposely had to do that, their countenance was better than the other people. Not just the same, better. And then it says at the end of this uh, chapter, look at verse 17. He didn't just bless them in the way they looked and, their, and the, um, the, the effect they were having on people. It says, look at verse 17, And as for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, at the end of the days, the king had said he should bring them in. So the, the three years are up. The three years have already passed, okay? Then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king communed with them. So he's with them. He's talking with them. And among them, all was found none, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm. And Daniel continued even unto the first year of King Cyrus. Now I want you to share with you, we are very valuable to the people in this world. You'd think it's strange that King Nebuchadnezzar found these four ten times better in their understanding and their knowledge and their advice than all the other ones that, that were, that were uh, brought before him. Why? Do you think that's a fluke? No, because they had the wisdom of God that they were sharing. And the wisdom of God was very valuable to King Nebuchadnezzar who was smart enough to realise how smart they were. And he kept those four so I want to share that you are very valuable to the people in this world. You have a wisdom and a knowledge this world does not have. And the perspective that we see things from, the world can't see. So when we share our wisdom, we share, not our wisdom, God's wisdom, when we share the knowledge of the scriptures with people, it's, it's giving them something from an angle they could never perceive before. And I'm sure... When, when King Nebuchadnezzar asked Daniel, Daniel, what do you think about this particular matter? And Daniel may have responded, King, I think this is the way it is, and I think this is the way you should approach it. I'm sure there were plenty of times that Nebuchadnezzar, wow, I never looked at it like that. And that's exactly what we've been called to do. We've been called to share a perspective with them that they would never see otherwise. And when they begin to see that there's a different perspective and that there's, there's joy and blessings and grace and all the things that we enjoy, it will naturally lead them to the Saviour that we follow and we believe in. So remember, as Romans 12.2 says, be not conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God bless you all. May the Lord bless you during this week. Thank you. Amen.